Hey, hello, friends. Lee Henson Hasty here um, with my new friend, Salim Gubrell. I'm from Pittsburgh. Uh, thanks for being here today, Salim. Thank you, Lee. It's a joy to be with you. Thanks. We're just talking about, are we well? I said he looked well, and he asked if I was, um, and uh, we're vaccinated here. We're um, <laughs> boosted, all our family, and so far, so good. And let's hope the country numbers, all this continues to to drop and um, but it's great to be able to gather in a virtual space uh, with you today and for others for y'all to join us we're glad to have you please let us know you're here in the in the comments and um, we're gonna be talking soon about uh, some wonderful work with the Pittsburgh Promise um, this topic of education as a key to economic mobility it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing mission of this organization and vision. Salim is the founder of this organization, but it's, I know he sees himself as a partner, <laughs> not as, as the one doing this. Um, so I uh, hope you'll join us. And if you're interested in this kind of work um, uh, and in nonprofit work and faith-based nonprofit work, we'd love, love to hear from you. Let us, let us know you're here. And Lee, so, just uh, one, one minor correction. I, I'm not the founder, I'm the founding director, but I was part of the team a founding director. Thank you for that correction. <laughs> um, but glad glad to have you here, Salim. And uh, again, I'm Lee Henson Hasty. I'm the senior director of Theological Education Funds Development for the Presbyterian Church USA Foundation. Um, this is a ministry of the Committee on Theological Education. We work to support future ministers um, because we believe um, they really do make a difference. Um, people like Salim Gubril, who is a graduate of the University of Dubuque Theological Seminary in Iowa um, and uh, lives now and serves in Pittsburgh in a variety of ways. Um, he believes that education is a key to economic mobility. Um, and uh, that's a theological vision, too, uh, I suspect. <laughs> um, right. Uh, thanks for being here, Salim. It's a pleasure to be here, Lee. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. Yes. Um, well, it's, um, you know, education, we always uh, talk about Presbyterians like John Knox being uh, uh, ones who believed in public education. It's something Presbyterians <laughs> believe in. Yeah. And, um, and public education is where some of the spaces where you're working, I know. Uh, but thanks for your vision. I know you serve also um, Mosaic Community Church. That's Mosaic uh, Pittsburgh.org, a beautiful vision of a, of a faith community there. So thanks for who you are, what you do, and how you're doing it. And I'm looking forward to introducing you to um, hopefully more to learn about um, this vision and what you're about. But before we get formally started into the topic, uh, I just want to ask a question I ask almost all my guests, and that is about their call. Um, in baptism, we believe uh, we, we are called and continue to be called. Howard Thurman would say, what is making you come alive? Because what we need is people who are coming alive. And one of my, um, one of my friends uh, also asked a different way, Katie Geneva Cannon is, she said, what is the work your soul must have? So um, tell us, what is the work your soul must have, Salim? Wow, these are <laughs> profound questions and great ways to frame them. Um, so the reason my name is Salim Gabriel, I was born in Beirut, Lebanon, and raised in the Middle East and lived in southern Lebanon for the first 16 years of my life. Arabic is my first language, English my second. I uh, lived about 35 miles north of the border with Israel. And then during the uh, early 
months of the Civil War in the mid-70s, 1970s, uh, my family took some casualties, some cousins and some uncles. Mm. My brother was kidnapped and home was mm. bombed. And, um, and we fled. We, my father woke my brother. We got my brother back, thankfully. Uh, my brother, my father woke us up in the middle of the night. He said, the car's packed. We're leaving. At that time, my father was working as an accountant for the American embassy in Beirut. And out of respect for his two decades or so of service, they uh, snuck us into the convoy they were using to evacuate American citizens wow. way, before, way before we were American citizens and got us out. Um, but months before, just months before the Civil War broke out in Lebanon, I remember uttering my first prayer. I'm sure I prayed before, but the one that I remember happened just months before the Civil War. And it was simply this, God, I want my life to count. Mm. Uh, I'd uh, seen lots of my, my peers and my friends and some family members whose lives were cut short. And I wanted to, my life to count. It wasn't longevity that I prayed for, but uh, fruitfulness. Mm. I prayed for. Um, I'm not sure I understood that at the age of 14, but nonetheless, that was that was my prayer. We came to the U.S. I was 16 years old. I uh, got thrown out of the first high school that I attended. I got thrown out of the first college that I attended. I find it funny that I'm running the Pittsburgh Promise, which is <laughs> sending kids to school when I've been thrown out of more schools than we send kids to. Um, but throughout that whole thing, you know, throughout my kind of my dumb season of life where I was making stupid choices, there were caring adults in my life who uh, gave me multiple, multiple multiple second chances. Um, mm. So uh, that first prayer, I want my life to count, having been the recipients of numerous second chances when I was in my younger years and in my older years, um, that kind of shaped my, my, uh, my vocational choices. I've been serving kids since, uh, um, since 1982, uh, mm -hmm. full-time full work serving young people early on in the context of churches, but then starting in 1986 through the context of, a, of a, a urban nonprofit community development organizations. The Pittsburgh Project for 23 years, Mosaic Community Church for the last 21 years, and uh, the Pittsburgh Promise for the last 14 years. So I'm not, I'm not sure if that answers the uh, question. <laughs> maybe in a more long-winded way than you'd hoped. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I mean, what a beautiful prayer. Um, you know, uh, I bet you still pray that prayer. <laughs> I do. I do. That is my consistent prayer. Right. I mean, our life would count and matter, and it's not about longevity, but about fruitfulness. I mean, that is a faithful, faithful prayer. Um, and it sounds like you're able, you're finding ways to do that with not alone, uh, with a faith community, with organizations, um, and and um, and also individuals looking for for se others looking for second chances. <laughs> Maybe it's not the topic for today's talk, but sometime we got to hear about what got you thrown out of those schools. <laughs> that that may be uh, uh, rated inappropriate for this. Okay. <laughs> well, but it's it, what, I appreciate your vulnerability because I mean. I, I just think, you know, you re, when you read in scripture too, not everybody's perfect, right? None of us, it's not about being perfect. It's not about being a flawless or anything like that. It's, um, but it's about, you know, um, that kind of transformation toward making a difference. And, oh, it sounds like the story of, um, 
uh, of your es escape, so to speak, is is almost could be a movie. Maybe you yeah. make a movie. <laughs> I mean, the reality is that that's the story of uh, countless millions of people right. across the globe. Gosh, and uh, you know, like we would we would never run out of scripts for movies like no. that. No, I and I suspect, I hope, and I pray that there are many many students that you uh, partner with for um, for college scholarships that and, and support and outreach are many immigrant families and first generation folk. I, is that true? There are. Um, uh, there are 40 some languages spoken in our Pittsburgh public schools. And uh, obviously every one of those students who speaks any one of those languages uh, is one of our kids. Right. So tell us about Pittsburgh Promise. What is that promise that you're yeah. making to the students and, and to whom? So in 2008, we uh, launched the Pittsburgh Promise. And essentially, it's simply this. We promised every kid who lives in the city of Pittsburgh and enrolls and graduates from any one of our urban public schools in Pittsburgh public schools and uh, the charters that are part of our system, um, that we will support them with uh, a college scholarship to pursue their post-secondary dreams. And we can we give them uh, $5,000 a year for four years of college, $20,000. And then we have a, a series of support services and systems in place that help them find other resources that ensure that they are grounded once they get on campus, that they uh, uh, the goal is obviously not just to send them, but to see them through to completion and then help them land jobs in the city of Pittsburgh if we can. And to date, we have supported uh, 10,635 uh, students with about $160 million in wow. private scholarships, all private. No, there, there's not any government money in this. And 650 companies in Pittsburgh have employed Promise alums. Wow. Um, we've been around for 14 years now, and our hope is to serve another 10,600. And, and then um, uh, by then I will have... Um, uh, little usefulness left. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the mission will continue. And it um, it's making me think we were talking about vocation and call and in the, in the Presbyterian church, uh, we think about that um, from baptism. I mean, and we make promises that we will nurture and care for those children. It sounds like you were doing that. I realize these are not necessarily all uh, Christian or even people of faith necessarily, but you certainly are treating them as children of God um, and as part of your family and that yeah. they matter and are loved by God and, and you and your organization. They are children of God. They <laughs> matter to God. They matter to us. And uh, regardless of whether they know that or not, uh, <laughs> we view every single one of them as having nothing but, but an endless supply of sacred breaths that started mm. with that very first breath that was uh, blown into the nostrils of Adam. Right. <laughs> Wow, that's beautiful. And and they see that. I mean, you know, it's not just something you're you're saying with your words, you're living it with your actions. And I love that this is not just, you know, sort of not just a, a, a launch into school and get started, but you stay with them. And I, you, you highlight like many of them come back, the 600 and some who come back and are employed back in Pittsburgh. I mean, that's full circle. I mean, that was actually 650 companies. That oh, 650 companies. Oh, it's this. There's more students. 650 yeah. companies that have employed these. Right. I promise. Um, right. I see. Okay. 
and Lee, uh, you know, many of them have become, no, of course, I don't know all 10,635 of our Promise Scholars. I, I don't know half of them. I know a few hundred of them and then some quite well and quite personally. I've officiated the weddings of four of them. Wow. And, uh, and look forward to baptizing their children if the opportunity right. <laughs> comes up. So what is the intersection with um, with Mosaic, the Mosaic community, mosaicpittsburgh.org? What is the, the intersection with your ministry and organization with that community? Is this a hand-in-hand hand or is this just, are you the the thread that connects or? Yeah, there's not an official formal connection between the two, uh, but my faith community very much fuels um, the uh, passion and the uh, fire for this work. Um, many of the families in our faith community have uh, have children and many of their children have received promise scholarships. And so, that, but the, I mean, the church is a very small church. It's an urban church that has about maybe uh, when everybody shows up about a hundred people where mm -hmm. I am the senior citizen, it's mostly young people. <laughs> I had the privilege of shepherding that congregation until about a year ago when uh, uh, our, our new young pastor took over about uh, almost exactly a year ago, February 1st, wow. uh, 21. And it's fun to be pastored by somebody who's younger than my kids. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, I'm glad to hear you have children too. That's <laughs> a good and five thing. grandchildren. Oh wow! <laughs> so um, a lot, a, a lot of uh, children of God in your life—that is, mm -hmm. that is for sure. So what, what is this vision, this mission that you believe? Let's just not make, let's just not assume. Uh, why do you think education is a key to economic mobility? Why does this matter? And and using this particular lever that you're using, um, in the and promise in the Pittsburgh schools. Why, why do you think this matters? Uh, I don't think it matters. I know that it matters. <laughs> you know it matters. I have seen firsthand uh, the transforming. I mean, uh, we could probably all share anecdotes of people whose lives were transformed because somebody took a chance on them. I'm going to answer your question, if I may, in um, in two or three short segments. One of them Please. is, um, <laughs> you know, I, I told you that I've had numerous second chances and I've had lots of caring adult mentors in my life. Some of them you may know. Uh, like uh, like Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, who's a, a Presbyterian, was a Presbyterian, ordained Presbyterian pastor. And then um, his pulpit was children's television. And he was a dear right. friend. And I had the privilege of of uh, giving the homily at his funeral. Uh, so he oh, was an wow. person. But another person who's been very instrumental in my life, who's still living, is a preacher from Jackson, Mississippi, by the name of uh, John Perkins, Dr. John Perkins. And Dr. Perkins, who's now in his early 90s, had only a third grade formal education, about 11 or 12 honorary doctorates. And he's been an absolute champion of, um, of uh, faith and, uh, and community development uh, kind of converging into, into one stream because you know it's hard to love God without loving your neighbor. And it's hard to love your neighbor if, you're not, if your neighbor is hungry and you're not, uh, you know, like, like John says in one of his epistles, if you see your brother in need and you don't help them, how can you say that the love of God is in your heart? Which is a great question. Uh, Dr. Perkins, um, who carries on his body and on his skin the um, evidence of mm. decades of ugly white supremacy and racial brutality and racism, has not allowed those scars to penetrate his heart. He's been the champion of uh, uh, racial healing in Jackson, and in Mississippi, and really throughout the land. 
and we had him speak at one of our events and he opened and he was talking to college students and he gave his opening line was just fantastic. And I'm not going to try to mimic him, but he said something like this. Um, You've heard it said, give a man a fish, he eats for a day, teach him how to fish and he eats for a lifetime. And the right. crowd was saying, yeah, 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 that's what we got to do. We have to make sure that, that people can fish, not just uh, give them fish. Of course, we got to give them fish if they're hungry, but they have to they have to learn how to fish for themselves and we got to help them. Right. And then Dr. Perkins had this kind of grin on his face and said, yeah, but who owns the pond? Oh. And that is a, that's a haunting question for me. Right. Ownership ownership of any kind is something that um, uh, some people seem to be able to attain over and over and over again, multiple right. times over, and then others never, uh, whether it's a leased car or a rented house or rent an apartment or like, a, but never be able to get to the place of ownership. And in low income communities and in the black community, that's been a particularly hard thing to reach. And for right. most of us, how do we how do we pass wealth from generation to generation? Most of us get to buy a house and that becomes the kind of the center of whatever whatever wealth right. that we have is the house that right. we own. And we pass that to our kids and they probably will sell it. But then that kind of generates some wealth that they can pass on to their kids. But if you're never able to buy, then there's nothing to pass from generation to generation. Right. Table that thought for just a second. Now on to something else. On any given day in the Pittsburgh market, there are about 25,000 jobs that are available. And that's been the case for several years in a row right now. So we have jobs that we need to fill. We did an analysis of those jobs to see what it is that they require by way of education. And 60% of the jobs available uh, did not require a four-year degree or a specialized degree. 40% did, but, but all 100% of the jobs required some form of post-secondary credential. Hmm. Um, so if the jobs that are available require a credential, then we have a whole class of people who don't have access to a post-secondary education. So how will they have that credential to get that job that can then generate uh, the ability to own something that you pass on from generation to generation? Right. So, and the key that makes it possible for them to do that is access to education. <laughs> now, the, the gap, the chasm between the top economic quartile and the bottom economic quartile in the country in terms of access to higher education has more than doubled in size since you and I went to college. Mm. Um, so both groups, the children of both the top economic quartile and the bottom economic quartile, their, their numbers of pursuing a post-secondary education has grown, but the top economic by vastly larger uh, numbers than the bottom economic quartile. So. Um, so we're hoping through the Pittsburgh Promise to make it possible for uh, inner city kids who are going to our public schools in the city, whether they are black or white or Nepali or, or Iraqi or um, uh, uh, Sudanese or you know, whatever their, their, their demographic, and we have them all, um, that they are able to show up in the marketplace in a way that, they, uh, that enables them to compete. Because listen to this, the, the, today's economy is brutal. Today's economy is ruthless for those who are undereducated. There is right. not room at the table for those who are undereducated. And right. our, our message is not that you have to have a four-year degree or more. Our message is a high school diploma is not enough. It used to be, but it no longer right. is enough. So we have to help you with getting a credential of some kind. And well, I suspect these, these statistics are mirrored across the country. You know, when people are talking about working on issues of race or issues of poverty, issues of inequality, this is something you can do. And this is a movement nationally. This is not just something in Pittsburgh, right? right. I mean, 
Um, there are about I mean, 40 you're cities. You're a real model on that. <laughs> yeah, there are about 40 cities today that have promise-like programs. But, but, but re the reality, Lee, is that on our best of days, promises like ours are just large band-aids. Mm. When our work is done, there will be 20-some thousand lucky kids who grew in Pittsburgh and had access to this. But that's, and, and that's not a small thing, and I don't in any way belittle the importance of that. But that's not systems change. Right. There are serious flaws with how we fund higher education in this country and uh, with uh, uh, who has access to it and who does not. Um, you might be interested in, in this. So when I went to college in the late 70s, early 80s, and then uh, I or anybody like me, a kid in that period of time could get a full-time job for the summer, work 500 hours for the summer at minimum wage and earn enough in those 500 hours at minimum wage to be able to buy tuition and fees at, at the average public university in the country right, for the following right, year right, and then right. repeat the following summer. Uh, today, to buy that very same product, the average public education at a state university, to be able to do that, we used to get it for 500 hours at minimum wage. Today, it requires 1,700 hours at minimum wow. wage. Now, minimum wage has gone up, but the cost of higher education has gone sky high. Sky high. So, uh, and 1,700 hours a year is uh, is three quarters time because a full time job is 2,000 hours, 2,080 hours to be exact. So we've uh, we've made it impossible for young people who don't have access to wealth, don't have and, they, and by wealthy I'm not talking about like great wealth. I'm just talking about the ability for somebody to help them pay for college. Pay for college. Well, I I don't know if you know this. My wife has written in this in this yeah. area. And there's work in the World Council of Churches around uh, and the PCUSA around wealth poverty and the ecology. They say there's also an you know an uh, ecological impact uh, as well. Um, so, gosh, what you're, you're exactly right. This is a systemic, uh, there's systemic issues here, economic issues, uh, racial issues um, to deal with. Um, I love the analogy. I don't want to lose it. Um, the, the question from John um, Perkins, um, the analogy is like, yeah, teach someone how to fish, but who owns the pond? Like, and and who gives the license for them to fish? And where do you get the fishing pole? And where do you get, it makes me think of the bait. I mean, there's a lot of, it, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, it's just not that the fish are there and you can go grab them, <laughs> you know, or the jobs are there and you can go get them or the education is there. There needs to be um, someone or, or some organization to be a partner in helping you give you access. It's an, it's that, it's sort of that provide that portal, that, you know, threshold. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. You're, you're a partner to kind of, I want to say like bridge into that access, um, for, and I, and I said, it's not just for their individuals, for their entire families. I mean, I bet they're, uh, and, and you're just really getting started. Um, I, the generations, hopefully this will continue to thrive. Um, uh, gosh, I hope so. And uh, you know, if we had time, I could tell you a few anecdotes that, I mean, everybody has good stories, right? And good stories, uh, enough of them make up data. Uh, <laughs> right. We'd love to hear one story. I know our time is, is flying by, but uh, if there are questions, we'd love to hear those, the folks who are joined us. Um, and um, 
but uh, let us know you're out there. But yeah, we love stories are great. There are a lot of preachers who walk, who listen to this. Uh, preachers love stories. <laughs> uh, and then somehow we all forget who told them and we tell them as though they are our own. Huh? <laughs> right. Right. Uh, would you okay? So sure, uh, yeah, I, please. I, I just remember very vividly um, uh, one fall showing up at one of our high schools and giving just doing a doing a school assembly and giving a little pep rally, introducing the senior class in that particular high school about the opportunity that awaits them at the end of their year. And I gave the talk, and afterwards everybody went back to class. One kid stayed back, and wanted to talk to me, and his question was simple. He said, "Listen, I heard you talk, and I heard you say that I had to have uh, a two point five uh, GPA to be able to get the scholarship. I'm starting my senior year with a 1.9 GPA. Do I have a shot at this? Woo. And, uh, you know, so, you know, three years of high school, he accumulated 1.9 and he has a year left and he has to get it at 2.5. I made up an answer. I didn't know what the answer was. I said, <laughs> well, it's still mathematically possible. It won't be easy. It'll require four reporting periods back to back of nothing but A's. And if you do that, the GPA will hit 2.5 and you'll get the scholarship. He said, okay, I, I know what I got to do. I didn't see him again until his commencement, his graduation from high school. I was the commencement speaker. We were backstage. He made wow. a deal to me. He put his hand on my chest, grabbed my shirt, and he said, listen, man, I did what you told me I had to do. Now, are you going to do what you told me you would do? And then <laughs> I, I invited him to come to my office the next day, which he did, and brought his report card. And lo and behold, this kid who over three years of high school had 1.9, the senior year, every class, every reporting period, straight mm. A's. And the math did work. Wow. Yeah. Was, he at that time was living with his mother and six siblings in public housing in one of our public housing apartments in, in the city and ended up getting into Penn State on probation, studied uh, studied yeah. engineering. And now he is he's a baller. He's doing great right now. And he's supporting his uh, taking care of his younger siblings. And nice. Oh, mother. wow. He's that married, is, has three kids. And it's just kind of fun to see that. That is beautiful. What a beautiful story. Um that is great. I've never been to Penn State, but I hear so it's it's that's probably that's probably just an experience in itself, you know, just being sure. great university. Um, college Station is that is that the name of the uh, State College? State College, yeah. yeah, yeah, Pennsylvania. That's that's beautiful. What a great story. Our time is is going fast here. If you have questions or comments for Salim, we'd love to hear those. Um, you just type them in our chat, and um, we'll try we'll try to answer those. Um, I'm wondering about. The, the, how did the University of Dubuque Theological Seminary fit in all of this? <laughs> so when we immigrated and ended up in the U.S. when I was 16 years old, we settled in Iowa City. And wow. then I uh, went to the University of Iowa. That's, um, I, that's the school that I went to, got thrown out of, and then came back to uh, on probation and graduated from. Met my wife there. She and I married when we were 20 years old, 41 years ago. And... Wow. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And then we came to Pittsburgh in 84 and started doing work here in the city. Uh, so when I was going, when I went to Dubuque, I was actually living in Pittsburgh. Uh, so we moved the family to Dubuque and I would spend three weeks in Dubuque, one week in Pittsburgh every month, then summers in Pittsburgh. So I was a commuter going to Dubuque from Pittsburgh, even though we have Pittsburgh Theological Seminary here. In right. retrospect, I could have made life easier on me and my family by staying locally. <laughs> But I wanted to study with a now deceased theology professor who was at Dubuque at that time, and that's Dr. Donald Blesch. Okay. To study with Dr. Blesch and had the privilege of uh, learning from him, and, uh, and the commute was worth it. That's beautiful. I, you know, I did a doctor of ministry, you know, the same way. I was following somebody I wanted to learn more about, it. and it's great advice. Like, look and see what faculty. This is also for 
I think higher education too, what the faculty are working on and, and, and what they're writing about. And cause that's, that's what you get that colleague, you know, that those colleagues of faculty is, I mean, you get colleagues in terms of other students too, but it's a wise way, especially to choose a seminary and a graduate school. So I, I get that, even though it's, um, I'm sure that was, that's tough, but I'm, I'm glad to hear the mentorship with, uh, Fred Rogers as well. I have, a um, I have my little Fred Rogers. Everybody here on the show has seen my Fred Rogers. Uh, that's great. St. Fred stays with me all the time. Um, what a special and, human being. Yeah. And uh, well, I, I'm now going to have to look up the YouTube. I hope there is one of of your homily. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear that. And it's you're doing, I mean, he was doing non-traditional ministry, you know, ahead of his time, right? It's this kind of work. And I'm glad to hear Pittsburgh Presbytery validates your ministry. <laughs> they yeah, ordained you and they, they validate it still, yeah. right? <laughs> That's right. They, they, they did. They ordained me to my neighborhood work. Wow. Uh, most people are ordained to do parish work. Fred was ordained to, to do children's television. Right. And I was ordained to do neighborhood work. So they call us what specialized ministers. Right, right. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm the same now with, uh, you know, in the work that I do. Yeah. Um, but I can't believe our time has gone and uh, I would love for you to offer a blessing, a charge to us in a moment. I want to invite folks, um, to, uh, join us in two weeks, March 2nd, I believe is the date I'll have with me, Melanie Jones. Melanie is the new, uh, director of the Katie Geneva Cannon. Center for Womanist Leadership at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Virginia, um, where they're doing amazing uh, things there. Um, very womanist theology. I don't know how, if you've read much, Celine, but very much a community engagement sort of uh, world of thought. And uh, um, Melanie is uh, a young and emerging scholar in that area. And so I'm, I'm very excited to have her. Hope folks will join us on womanist leadership. Um, and let me just say thanks again um, for who you are, uh, Salim, for what you do and have done for your uh, work with Mosaic Community, your work with the Pittsburgh Project and the Pittsburgh Promise, uh, your work in the community of Pittsburgh with your family, um, your uh, mentorship uh, and, and connection with Fred Rogers, for all the things that make you who you are, um, for those connections with students like the story you told. Um, of someone, you know, on the brink of going and uh, not making it into school and being able to set goals and give them something and, and them accomplishing that and you being there again for them. Thank you for that witness you're providing um, to Jesus Christ, to God and um, to, to goodness in the world. It's, it gives me a lot of hope today and I'm sure many who are listening today and who will listen later. So thanks again. Would you bless us? Sure. Well, in Pittsburgh, we are surrounded by rivers. We have the Allegheny, we have the Monongahela, and together they meet and form the Ohio. So I'm going to use, uh, that's become kind of a visual for me for what Amos talks about in, in his uh, book and his prophecy about let justice flow like mm -hmm. rivers and righteousness like ever flowing streams. So whatever you are, may uh, justice and righteousness flow from everything that you do and reach everyone that you care about. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Thanks so much. And friends, 